The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. Let's take our Bibles and open them to Leviticus chapter 2. And I'd like to read this chapter, this entire chapter, before we get into any comments this evening. Uh, Sixteen verses in this chapter, another reading after that. The, the, the Old Testament has some long chapters, and trying to figure out these different things, we have to do some long readings to get it all. We will make sure that we do that. So we're looking at Leviticus chapter 2, and verse number 1. And we'll... And when any will offer a meat offering unto the Lord, his offering shall be a fine flour, and he shall pour oil upon it and put frankincense thereon. And he shall bring it to Aaron's sons, the priest, and he shall take thereof his handful of the flour thereof and of the oil thereof with all the frankincense thereof. And the priest shall burn the memorial of it upon the altar to be an offering made by fire, of a sweet savor unto the Lord. And the remnant of the meat offering shall be Aaron's and his sons. It is a thing most holy of the offerings of the Lord made by fire. And if thou bring an oblation of a meat offering, bacon in the oven, it shall be unleavened cakes of fine flour mingled with oil, or unleavened wafers anointed with oil. And if thy oblation be a meat offering, bacon in a pan, it shall be a fine flour, unleavened, mingled with oil. Thou shalt part it in pieces and pour oil thereon. It is a meat offering. And if thy oblation be a meat offering, bacon in the frying pan, it shall be made of fine flour with oil. Now, the frying pan, that is for southern Hebrews. Uh, number eight, verse number eight. And thou shalt bring the meat offering that is made of these things unto the Lord, and when it is presented unto the priest, he shall bring it unto the altar. And the priest shall take from the meat offering a memorial thereof, and shall burn it upon the altar. It is an offering made by fire of a sweet savor unto the Lord. And that which is left of the meat offering shall be Aaron's and his sons. It is a thing most holy of the offerings of the Lord made by fire." No meat offering which he shall bring unto the Lord shall be made with leaven, for ye shall burn no leaven nor any honey in the offering of the Lord made by fire. As for the oblation of the first fruits, ye shall offer them unto the Lord, but they shall not be burnt on the altar for a sweet savor. And every oblation of thy meat offering shalt thou season with salt, neither shalt thou suffer the salt of the covenant of thy God to be lacking from Thy meat offering, with all thine offerings, thou shalt offer salt. And if thou offer a meat offering of the first fruits unto the Lord, thou shalt offer for the meat offering of thy first fruits green ears of corn, dried by the fire, even corn beaten out of full ears. And thou shalt put oil upon it, and lay frankincense thereon. It is a meat offering. And the priest shall burn the memorial of it, part of the beaten corn thereof, and part of the oil thereof, with all the frankincense thereof, it is an offering made by fire unto the Lord. Then to the sixth chapter, we have another section on the meat offering in verse number 14. Leviticus 6, verse number 14. And this is the law of the meat offering. 
the sons of Aaron shall offer it before the Lord, before the altar, and he shall take of it his handful of the flour of the meat offering and of the oil thereof, and all the frankincense which is upon the meat offering, and shall burn it upon the altar for a sweet savor, even the memorial of it unto the Lord. And the remainder thereof shall Aaron and his sons eat with unleavened bread, shall it be eaten in the holy place. In the court of the tabernacle of the congregation they shall eat it. It shall not be bacon with leaven. I have given it unto them for their portion of my offerings made by fire. It is most holy as is the sin offering and as the trespass offering. All the males among the children of Aaron shall eat of it. It shall be a statute forever in your generations concerning the offerings of the Lord made by fire. Everyone that toucheth them shall be holy. And then you have this next section uh, also that has to do with the meat offering. But that particular section has to do with uh, daily offerings by the priests. Priests that were made morning and evening. Every morning and evening this next section deals with specifically what the priests were to do for themselves. Now, in our study of these offerings, there are five offerings that are the subjects of the Old Testament sacrifice series. These are the burnt offering, the meal offering, the peace offering, and the sin offering, and the trespass offering. The first three of those are designated as sweet savor offerings, and the last two are non-sweet savor offerings. And the difference is whether those offerings refer to the life of Christ or to his death as a sacrifice for our sins. So the sweet savor offerings are about the perfection of Christ's life, and the non-sweet savor offerings are about the awfulness of sin and Christ's payment for sin at the cross. Now, you notice that we did read two portions of Scripture. Uh, the first portion, uh, we wanted to get that in because there it talks about the the. Uh, responsibilities of the people to bring this offering. And then in the sixth chapter, that was dealing mostly with how the priests were to handle that offering at, as, uh, after, it was, after it was brought in. Now this evening, we are, we're going to talk about the second offering, and that is the meal offering, which is a sweet savor offering. And we know when we say that it's sweet savor, the Bible says that, that in it we'll find a reflection of Christ's character, the goodness of Christ's life, how that Christ is all-sufficient and making up for all the areas that we lack. Where we lack in obedience, Christ makes up for that. Where we lack love, He makes up devotion. He makes up for us our consecration and worship and all of that. Places where we lack, this offering shows how Christ makes all of that up. And so in every area of our lives where we are deficient, Christ excels. And when God asks for perfection, He never comes to us. He can never look at us, but he has to go to the one who supplies it for us. And that's to the Lord Jesus Christ. And in this way, the life of Christ is just as essential for our salvation as is Christ's death. Now, we often say this, that we are saved by the death of Christ. But it's also as much true for us to say that we are saved by his life. His life was extremely important. This is not an inconsequential part of who Christ is to us. His life is supremely important because it was a life of righteousness that he lived and earning righteousness during his life, he was able to, he is able to uh, transfer that righteousness to us, to impute it to us by faith in him. That's what justification by faith is about. 
And so, in the offerings, we find these two very necessary parts are shown in sweet savor offerings, the life of Christ, and in non-sweet savor, the, the death of Christ. Now, before we look closer at this sacrifice, we do need to talk a little bit about the terminology. In the King James, we see this is called the meat offering. But we've just read the text, and there's no meat there. There aren't any animals that are mentioned. When we studied the burnt offering the last couple of weeks, there were oxen, there were sheep, and there were birds. But in this one, there are no animals, and thus there is no meat. Instead, what we find is grain and flour, there's frankincense and salt and unleavened wafers. There is no animal, just foodstuffs that come from the earth. Now, the problem, of course, in, in reading this is the changing language. Uh, we're in modern English. The King James is Old English. And in the Old English, meat, uh, in the King James, meat is a word that's just used to stand for food. It doesn't matter if there's an animal. It doesn't matter if it's vegetables or bread. None of that matters. It's simply anything that's considered as food. And so uh, this is just a general term. Meat is a general term. And so in this offering, there is no actual meat, but we do find grain and flour, other items that don't have anything to do with meat, but they are food. And these are, these are items that were to be brought for this, for this offering. So we choose the word meal to describe it because we understand that better. And we have two purposes for that. The first is that when grain is ground, what do we call that? That's called meal. That's why we call it a meal offering. The second purpose is the balancing of food. We call it a meal offering because when we have a meal, it's not just meat. What we do is we add other foods to it. Uh, when you eat a hamburger, it's not just the, just the meat portion, but you also have bread and there are pickles and lettuce and ketchup and maybe on the side you got some fries and potato chips. Well, the Hebrews were the same way. They liked to balance their meal, so they rounded out the meal with other things. So in these different offerings, and some of them are layered on top one of another, we have a meal offering, and there will be meat that will be taken of as well. And so you have a mixture, a, a balancing out of that meal. And so the Hebrews did just as we do. They rounded out the meals. Bread was a staple of their diet, just like it is of ours. And when there was too much bread in a meal, maybe they would say, where's the beef, or something like that. And in this offering, you definitely have to ask that, where is the beef, because there isn't any here. Uh, this is flour, and so we call it a meal offering, or we also call it a grain offering. Now, there are a few things that I need to discuss with you uh, before we get to the symbolism of the offering. Since we have a complete Bible, and we can read all of it, it's easy easier for us to, to go back through the Scriptures and assign meaning to all these nuances, little nuances of these things that we read in the offerings. Some commentators are very, very big about typology, and they see a type in every line of the Scripture. Something there they see that symbolizes Christ or something uh, holy. Uh, I love to read Arthur Pink, but quite frankly, Pink is a typology freak. I mean, he, he seems to see a type in everything, and you wonder sometimes when you read Pink, how is it that he had so much insight into the Scriptures that others didn't have, and he may see types where other people don't see types? Uh, Charles Spurgeon, in his book, Commenting on Commentaries, uh, made some comments about the poor man's commentary that was written by Richard Hawker, and one of the comments that uh, Spurgeon made about it, he said that when, when Hawker 
wrote about the Psalms that he often saw Christ in passages where to Spurgeon it was obviously there wasn't any reference to Christ. And so he said, Hawker's always finding Christ in the Psalms. Well, of course, Christ is in the Psalms, but is he in every verse of the Psalms? Well, Hawker seemed to be able to find Christ in nearly every verse of the, of the Psalms. So uh, what we have to be careful about is not looking for types and making types out of things that aren't types. Spurgeon, of course, was convinced that Hawker's use of typology was a little bit extreme. Now, the issue before us here is the, is the Bible hermeneutic. Now, that's a word that you need to know if you're going to study theology. The word hermeneutic means the method of interpretation. What is the method that we use to interpret the Bible? Well, in this case, or in talking about these sacrifices, we have a complete Bible. And that colors our hermeneutic just as it should. Uh, the New Testament scriptures tie up loose ends, and that's what helps us to figure out things that we read in the Old Testament. But we have to remember that when this was written, Moses didn't have uh, anything else. There was nothing for him to look back to. He didn't have the New Testament. He's just beginning to write the Old Testament. And so there was nothing for Moses to fall back on, to rely on that was in the past that would explain the reasons why that God did many of these things. And we notice as we read the Old Testament that there are no elaborate instructions or elaborate explanations, I should say, of why God had the Hebrews do these things and what did each part of the sacrifice represent. And that's part of your problem. As you read the Old Testament, you try to go through these chapters, you say, what's that for? What's that for? What's that for? What's that for? Well, the Hebrews might have said exactly the same thing. What's that for? So Moses didn't have these uh, elaborate explanations. But that's not to say that the Israelites obeyed blindly what they were told to do. No, they did believe that what they were supposed to do was do it God's way. That they were to worship God exactly as God said to worship Him. And that showed that they were connected to God in a very intimate way. That their God was not at all like the God of heathens, but their God was very specific. God gave detailed instructions about what they were to do. And you read them here in these chapters. You've got to do it this way. And this comes next. This comes next. Use this. Use that. Don't use that. And so you have all these detailed instructions. And those instructions came from above. They were given to Moses on Mount Sinai. And the Word of God says these things were mediated in the hands of angels. But that's something the heathens can't claim. There's nobody that could say that they got information directly from their gods. And so the Israelites knew that these things that they were to do separated them from other people, that it kept them distinct as God's chosen people. And so they knew they were to do these things as God commanded, but they didn't know how all of these things connected to the life and the death of Jesus Christ. And so the high priest could not write a gospel sermon and said, you're going to do these things because this is going to point to the Lord Jesus Christ who will come in the future and he will be a sacrifice for your sins. And this is why we're doing all these things. Now you and I, hopefully, are fascinated when all the connections are made and we rejoice in the knowledge of our great Savior that's made more apparent to us through the use of these sacrifices, but the Israelites couldn't see everything that we see. And so their focus on these sacrifices was, was narrow and it was immediate. Well, that leaves us wondering how to interpret the text. 
considering the immediate context for Israel, what is the significance of the meal offering in their understanding? And that's a very different animal, pun intended. One author said, My biggest problem is that the typological meaning of any Old Testament text would not have been known to the ancient reader because a type is best recognized and understood in the light of the coming antitype. Joseph did not perceive himself as a type of Christ, nor did his brothers, nor did any Israelite, until after the coming of Christ. Now, in light of its typological fulfillment, we understand the meaning and significance of the type. Typology may be of value to us, but it was of little or no value to the ancient Israelite. So that's a, that's a very important point. When you read the text and you ask, why did they do that? Well, the answer is different depending on whose, whose viewpoint that's in question. So I can't say, well, here's the reason that they did this. They did this to, to show that Christ was going to come into the world and that he would live a perfect life. And then he would go to the cross to die for our sins. I can make that claim in our understanding because the antitype came. In our context, we can say, well, these are the things that they stand for. But a type can't be known until the antitype is shown. And so the offering shows us something different than it did to them. The type has no meaning unless there is an antitype. Now, I hope you do understand that. If that's not clear to you, then... Ask me again, maybe in form class or wherever, and I'm happy to go back through that with you. Now, because of what we know, and, and with all the information that we have, and then comparing that to the information they didn't have, then a search has to be made to discover what did this sacrifice originally mean to the Israelites. What did the Israelites, standing at the foot of Mount Sinai, think when God says, well, I want you to make a sacrifice. In the case of the burnt offering, he says, bring this offering, flay it into all of its pieces, burn it all on the altar. Then he comes to the grain offering and says, here's this whole list of things that I want you to do with this grain, with the flour, and so forth. What did they think that was all about? Why did God tell them to do this? Well, that, that folks, is the harder part of the interpretation. That's the harder part of the hermeneutic. This becomes much more difficult because most people don't take time to discover that particular part because, after all, it's less significant to us. We live in a different time. We have more information. And so we're not so much as, con as concerned what do the Israelites think. We want to know what is the message that God has for us today. And so we do like Robert Hawker did. And that is we want to find Christ in the text. We want to find how do these things represent Jesus Christ? Well, what suggestions then can be made about the meaning of this sacrifice to the original Israelites? Well, for understanding that part, we have to be very, very grateful to people who take their time to study ancient cultures and compare the text and bring these difficult circumstances to light to find its meaning so it can present to us the full picture. And I'll say this, and I'll repeat it in just a moment, that finding out what the Israelites thought about it is also good for us. So we don't want to skip that part, because the meaning there for them is also important to us, even though they didn't understand as much as we do about Christ. Now, in reading and studying uh, this particular offering, I favor an, uh, an opinion that was offered by someone who gave a good outline to it, uh, his name is unimportant to you because you wouldn't recognize it if I gave it anyway. Uh, this man is a, is a uh, doctor of theology from Dallas Theological Seminary. 
And he offered an opinion about this that I thought was pretty good, and, and we'll just kind of follow what his opinion is. I think it matches the text. And the first thing that he suggested was that there was a big change of lifestyle that was in store for Israel when they left Egypt. Canaan was a very, very much different place than Egypt. Farming techniques in Egypt were different than they were in Canaan. And when Israel lived in Egypt, they were still somewhat nomadic. Uh, they weren't farmers, but they tended flocks and, and their herds. And they moved around whenever they needed to find grass. And you remember that when they went into Egypt, that they were placed in the area called Goshen, which is the, the, in the area of the, of the Nile Delta, and they were shepherds, and shepherds were an abomination to the Egyptians, and so they were kind of separated from the Egyptian people. But Pharaoh, because of Joseph, put them into the lush green land of Goshen because that was really, really good for their, for their flocks and their herds. Um, when the Jews needed grain, they weren't farmers. So they're not raising grain while they're in Goshen. They're there for the grass. And so when they needed grain, they would buy it from the Egyptians or that would be supplied to them. And it, it was really, uh, Egypt really, really was a productive place because of the Nile River. And they had all these different kinds of irrigation techniques that the Egyptians used. Uh, the, the river watered their crops and, and the crops were abundant. And uh, the Egyptians were very good at this, very good at their farming techniques. And so you remember that when Joseph... Uh, discovered to Pharaoh that there was going to be a famine of seven years that would come to the land, that Joseph was put in charge of, of the grain production, of being second in, in charge of all the land of Egypt for that seven years prior to the famine. And during that time, Joseph ramped up the grain production. And in that seven years, they grew enough grain and stored enough grain that they could feed themselves and to feed nations that were around them. So Egypt fed their people, and then there were people that came beyond Egypt to come and buy grain at no doubt a premium price. That's one of the things that made Joseph such a smart man. And you remember, that's the way that jo Jacob and his sons entered into Egypt. They were in that famine. They had to have something to eat, and so Jacob sent his sons into Egypt to buy grain. Well, again, uh, Joseph was a, was a brilliant man in how he did this, that the famine would normally be a, just a terrible thing that would happen to the entire kingdom of Egypt. And in a sense it was because of, uh, of what happened to them economically, except for Pharaoh. Pharaoh, this, this famine was an economic boon to Pharaoh. Because when the people ran out of money, and they ran out of livestock, and they ran out of everything they had, the next thing that they did was to trade their land for food. And then... Pharaoh became the owner of all the private lands in Egypt. Now that's, that shows you how smart Joseph was in, in the way that he handled that. Well, when Israel reached Canaan, their lives were very different. They weren't nomads any longer. Instead, God assigned each tribe a specific portion of land. They have borders to that land. That's where they settle down. And now they don't buy grain anymore. Now they have to raise their own food. They have to become farmers and raise everything that they're going to eat. Now the problem is that farming is different in Canaan. There's no significant irrigation for most of the country. If you lived away from the Jordan Valley, then you couldn't depend on the river. 
A farmer was dependent upon the rain. No rain, no grain. So Deuteronomy chapter 11, if you'll turn there for just a minute, I can show this to you. A, a, a difference, God says, there, there, there's going to be a difference when you get into Canaan uh, as opposed to what you've experienced while you're in Egypt. And this difference is going to cause you to have to live by faith to depend on God. Deuteronomy 11 and verse number 10. For the land whither thou goest in to possess it is not as the land of Egypt from whence ye came out, where thou sowest thy seed and waterest with thy foot as a garden of herbs. Now, he's just telling them there, it was so easy in Egypt, it was just like kicking stuff over and things would grow. You just kick your feet around and stuff's growing there. But the land whither ye go to possess it is a land of hills and valleys, and drinketh water the rain of heaven, and land which the Lord thy God careth for, the eyes of the Lord thy God are always upon it from the beginning of the year even unto the end of the year. And it shall come to pass if ye shall hearken diligently unto my commandments which I command you this day to love the Lord your God and to serve him with all your heart and with all your soul that I will give you the rain of your land in his due season, the first rain and the latter rain that thou mayest gather in thy corn and thy wine and thine oil." Now, what do we draw from that? Well, I think that we can say that to the Israelites, the grain offering is a symbol of dependence on God to supply their needs. And when they brought the first fruits of their harvest, it showed that they had faith in God. It showed dependence, that they trusted God would take care of them. And this is just a big, big step for them. It took much faith for the Israelites to bring their grain at the beginning of the harvest, give that to God, and not know that more fruit would follow. And that was exactly the point. They had to trust God that more fruit would follow. That if they're faithful to bring in the required offerings, then God would supply for them. They couldn't see the fruits. The fruits are in the future. And thus we learn, faith is the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen. Well, this, this part is a part that Christians have a really hard time with. And this is why it's, it's good for us to look into the original context because there is something here for us to learn. And that is, as God's people today, we rarely step out on faith as they did. We have to have reserves. We've got to have something to fall back on. There has to be a safety net because we're concerned because we don't know the future. And so we stand on our retirement accounts we build bigger barns to store up all of our goods for uncertain times. And there's nothing wrong with being prudent. The Bible says that we should. But there are times as the people of God that we need to step out on faith and show that we have dependence on God. And sometimes that affects the church. Uh, our deacons' meetings are usually more about what we can afford rather than what we can faith can we really trust God? Will, will God do something for us? Now you think about this. When was the last time that our church did something that was totally based on faith? When was the last time that we stepped out to do something and we didn't have a contingency plan in place? And before, before you condemn the leadership for a lack of vision, you have to consider first that the church is you. That the church is the people. The church is a living organism. 
And a collection of faithless people does not make a church of great faith. And so you have to look at your habits first. What do you give by faith? Well, we look at the offerings on some Sunday mornings and we'd have to say, not much. Not much is given on faith. We give what we can spare. That's not faith. And a church that's filled with people that give what they can spare is not going to be a church that will step out on faith. Now let me show you something about this uh, dynamic in relation to us in Israel. If you'll turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 8, I want us to look here, here at a commendation for sacrificial giving. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, and this is the type of giving that we see in the Old Testament in, these, in this grain offering. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, Paul writes here and says, Moreover, brethren, we do you to wit, we want you to know about the grace of God bestowed on the churches of Macedonia. How that, in a great trial of affliction, the abundance of their joy and their deep poverty abounded under the riches of their liberality. For to their power I bear record, yea, and beyond their power they were willing of themselves. Now, here, the, the churches in Macedonia didn't give sparingly. A remarkable thing, thing took place here because the Scripture says they gave out of their poverty. So that would tell us that they gave what they didn't have to give. They gave more than they could actually afford to give. They gave beyond their ability. And that's what Paul commends them for. Now we go down to chapter 9 and verse number 5. Paul says, Therefore I thought it necessary to exhort the brethren that they would go before unto you and make up beforehand your bounty, whereof ye had noticed before that the same might be ready as a matter of bounty is not of covetousness. But this I say, he which soweth sparingly shall reap also sparingly. And he which soweth bountifully shall reap also bountifully. Every man is according as he purposed in his heart, so let him give, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loveth a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound toward you, that ye, always having all sufficiency in all things, may abound to every good work. That, folks, is the principle that was acted upon by the ancient Israelites. They gave of their first fruits, believing that if they depended on God and trusted Him, that, they, that God would replenish everything that they gave and bless them abundantly. And you know that's the same thing that God requires of us? God requires complete trust in Him so that we can step out on faith and we can do this, so that we can empty ourselves of everything that we have and then depend on God to fill us back up. This is what, this is what they did in the grain offering. And so when you evaluate leadership of the church, you need to consider what we have to work with. You are the church. The resources that are used by the leadership are the resources of the church, and it comes from the people. So I can just put it to you this way. If Leviticus 1 through 5 doesn't happen, the people bringing offerings, then Leviticus 6 and 7 doesn't happen. The priests don't have anything to offer. Now, another issue that we need to consider in the context is where they were when this command in Leviticus was given. They aren't in Canaan. They're fresh out of Egypt. Now, they're, they're at Sinai, and it's going to be a generation before they enter into Canaan. And this is really a perplexing problem with grain offerings because they're not in the middle of wheat fields. They're not settled down. They're not waiting for crops to grow and the harvest to come in. So where are they going to get grain? Well, every bit of grain that they had 
was precious to them. Most likely, they brought, bought grain from, from travelers, trade routes that were going through that area. They probably got it that way. But how, how are they going to, all these people, that are, how are they going to make this offering? Well, it looks like, at first glance, this looks like the easy offering. There's no expensive animal that's required. All that's needed is flour. But as it turns out, grain at this particular time was their most difficult offering. This was the hardest thing for them to procure. They can't get their hands on this. And God never said, well, here's the thing to do then. Just go out there and pick up some manna. There's plenty of manna out there. Just bring that, gather some extra, bring that in. Oh, manna, that's easy for them. They just pick up a little bit extra. But God did not let them bring manna. Now that reinforces what we already know. This is called sacrifice. And sacrifice came to mean more than bringing, bringing something, an animal, uh, just the animal that, that equates to sacrifice. No, sacrifice means to surrender something. Sacrifice means to give up something, to take a loss, give it up, because it costs you something. That's what we need to do. When David needed to make a sacrifice, he went to Ornan's threshing floor, and he says to Ornan, I need to make a sacrifice. And Ornan said to him, the beloved king, David's the beloved king to the people, Ornan says to him, well, you just take my threshing instruments, you can break all those up and use them for wood for your fire, and I'll give you the oxen for you to sacrifice. And you know what David said. David said, no, I'll buy it from you because I'm not going to give the Lord that which costs me nothing. Well, surrendering grain in the desert was a sacrifice, not an easy sacrifice. This is a very difficult one, and it took faith to do this. But you remember what God said to them? He said, I'm going to take you into the land, and the first year you'll eat what you did not plant, and you will reap what you didn't sow. And what is their condition? Bring me the sacrifice. Bring me what I require. So here are the Israelites... And what is the immediate meaning of the sacrifice to them? Well, they don't know the types. They can't look 1,500 years into the future and say, well, this grain somehow is going to represent Jesus. They couldn't do that. And so the only thing that they could see is this. I must depend on God to supply all my needs. And that is a very hard thing to do unless you are a person of faith. Let me give you one more point on this. Let's turn to 1 Kings chapter 17. Some of you may know where this will take us. This is Elijah and the widow of Zarephath. And I want you to pay close attention as we read through this. First uh, Kings chapter 17 and verse number 8. And the word of the Lord came unto him, that is to Elijah. The word of the Lord came unto him, saying, Arise, get thee to Zarephath, which belongeth to Zidon, and dwell there. Behold, I have commanded a widow woman there to sustain thee. So he arose and went to Zarephath. And when he came to the gate of the city, behold, the widow woman was there gathering of sticks. And he called to her and said, Fetch me, I pray thee, a little water in a vessel that I may drink. And as she was going to fetch it, he called to her and said, Bring me, I pray thee, a morsel of bread in thine hand. And she said, As the Lord thy God liveth, I have not a cake but a handful of meal in a barrel, and a little oil in a cruise. And behold, I am gathering two sticks, that I may go in and dress it for me and my son, that we may eat it and die. And Elijah said unto her, 
Fear not, go and do as thou hast said, but make me thereof a little cake first, and bring it unto me, and after make for thee and for thy son. For thus saith the Lord God of Israel, The barrel of meal shall not waste, neither shall the cruse of oil fail, until the day that the Lord sendeth rain upon the earth. And she went and did, according to the saying of Elijah, and she and he and her house did eat many days. And the barrel of meal wasted not, neither did the cruise of oil fail, according to the word of the Lord, which he spake by Elijah. Now there are some really, really great lessons in there that demonstrate what God said that he would do for Israel. The meal in the barrel, that sounds familiar now, doesn't it? The meal in the barrel. The widow, who doesn't have anything left. The prophet, who represents God. Faith here to give out of poverty. And then the dependence on rain for God to replenish the supply. So here we have an example of Israel. That the widow gave a grain offering when she had nothing left. And that was a true sacrifice for her. It seemed like Elijah demanded too much of her, didn't he? She's going to feed her son and die. And Elijah says, no, no, you, you make me a cake first, and then you make something for yourself. And so she had to believe what Elijah said. She had to have the faith that what Elijah said was true and that God would keep her up if she did this. So she must believe that God would provide until the rains return, the famine is over, and the crops will grow. There are very few of us that have our faith tested in that way. We, we usually get everything that we want, and we get it without actually asking God. He, he's just giving it to us. He supplies it. We don't ask God for it. We don't thank Him for it. We don't praise Him for daily provision. But here we find that the Israelites learn that they have no help but God. They must depend upon God. They're not going to get through this if they don't. They have to have the faith that God would do what he promised. Now, hopefully that answers some questions about what the Israelites thought, what they thought about it. What, what did they know about the sacrifice? And now we're ready to move into the part that we feel a little bit more comfortable with, and that is, what does the sacrifice mean to New Testament readers? And you have all these parts, and we're going to talk about those. But I'm not going to get into the outline this evening. We're going to save that for next time. And I just want to spend the few minutes that we have left showing you how that this command uh, and what we've learned so far about the burnt offering corresponds to the commandments. Now, this is a sweet savor offering, just as the burnt offering was. And it represents what is pleasing to God. Making sacrifice pleases God. All the sacrifices do. But the sweet-smelling offerings, you can say, are positively pleasing to God. Now, in that first offering, the burnt offering, there's a life that's taken. And everything in that offering, you remember, is given to God. Everything gets burned up. Everything goes up to God. No part of this offering is reserved for man. That offering was. And, and the priest didn't get any part of that offering. And remember we talked about how that shows the life of Christ and how it was completely given up to God, fully surrendered to God. And so in the sacrifice, everything goes up to God. And that exemplifies the first part of the commandments. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul and thy mind. And so the burnt offering represents the first table of the law. A man brought a sacrifice. He can't do any more. He can't add to that. He can't give himself to be offered. 
But that sacrifice that he brings represents him, and that's all that he can do. And that shows that Christ's life is sufficient for us. There, there's nothing we can add to the sacrifice of Christ. Nothing that we can do will satisfy God. So the first table shows everything that we have, everything that we are, must be given up to God. Everything goes up to Him. Now we look then at the meal offering, and there is no life that's given. The life of Christ is going to be shown here as well, but shown in a different way. And in this offering, the man comes and he brings something that he worked on. He tilled the ground, he tended the crop, he harvested the grain, and he brings the first fruits of his labor. Now, how do we show in a personal way that we love God? The Bible tells us that. The answer is what we do. It's the work of our hands. These are works that we do for each other. Now, in our fundamentals class, that's been the subject for the past few weeks. It's knowing God by a living faith. It's a faith that does something, a faith that works. And you should know the definitive text on that, so we'll turn there and look at it. James chapter 2. And James gives us a discussion of the demonstration of faith. And he tells us that faith is not something that lies dormant. A real faith, a real saving faith, is a faith that does something. And if it doesn't produce something in you to do something, it's not real saving faith. This is what he says in James chapter 2, beginning in verse 14. What doth it profit, my brethren... Though a man say he hath faith and have not works, can faith save him? Literally, can that kind of faith save him? If a brother or sister be naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you say unto them, Depart in peace, be warmed and filled, notwithstanding you give them not those things which are needful to the body, what doth it profit? Even so faith, if it had not works, is dead, being alone. Yea, a man may say... Show me thy faith without thy works. I will show thee my faith by my works. Thou believest there is one God, thou doest well. The devils also believe and tremble. But wilt thou know, O vain man, that faith without works is dead? And so if you are to obey the second half of the commandments, you must do something. You can't just say it. You must do something. To the hungry man, you don't say to him, well, sorry you're hungry, and God bless you, go away, and I hope you get filled. No, you feed the hungry man. Going on in the 8th verse, James says, If ye fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself, you do well. So our contribution to the second part of the Decalogue is what we do for our neighbor. It's the fruits of our hands, what we give to him, how we lift him up, how we support him, how we love him. And what does that prove? It proves that we love God. In 1 John, we'll turn there, we'll end with these two passages if you want to flip over there a few pages. To 1 John chapter 3, and in verse number 14. 1 John three fourteen. We know that we have passed from death unto life because we love the brethren. He that loveth not his brother abideth in death. Whosoever hateth his brother is a murderer, and ye know that no murderer hath eternal life abiding in him. Hereby perceive we the love of God, because he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoso hath this world's good, and seeth his brother have need, and shutteth up his bowels of compassion from him, how dwelleth the love of God in him? 
My little children, let us not love in word, neither in tongue, but in deed and in truth. And hereby we know that we are of the truth and shall assure our hearts before him. And then if you go into the fourth chapter, First uh, John chapter 4 and verse 20. If a man say, I love God and hateth his brother, he is a liar. For he that loveth not his brother whom he hath seen, how can he love God whom he hath not seen? And this commandment have we from him, that he who loveth God love his brother also. So our contribution, our labor, is to yield the peaceable fruits of righteousness. So this meal offering represents this part of the law. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. And so the grain offering is that royal law that James speaks of in chapter 2. Now, that part, folks, is just the beginning of the typology in this, in this offering. And it is, it's just thrilling to read all this in the Old Testament. At first glance, when we see it, Leviticus is obscure, it's vague, it makes very little sense to us. Modern readers don't see it until we study it, and it blossoms into that beautiful rose of Sharon, who is the Lord Jesus Christ. And that, that, that's what the Old Testament is supposed to do for us in relation to Christ. God spoke in diverse ways in the past. The types weren't known. God spoke in figures, shadows. He spoke in all these different symbols. And he spoke to us in these last days, the Word of God says, by his Son, Jesus Christ. Israel couldn't see it. They couldn't see it. The types are not known because the antitype had not come. But what do we know? The antitype has come. He was here. He was seen. As John said, we, we looked at in the forum class this morning, he said, we saw him, we touched him, we handled him. He was here. He was alive. The antitype has come. And now the thing for every believer in Jesus Christ to do is never take your eyes off him. All the beautiful pictures of Scripture come to life in the person of Jesus Christ. And that's what this is all about. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you now thanking you for the Word of God. How, how important it is, how worth, worth it, worthy it is for us to just take the Word of God, the value of it, to study these things out and, and to learn it and to see Jesus Christ. Uh, it's a thrilling thing to be able to put the Scriptures together to get that complete picture so that we're not lost wandering around the Bible not knowing how this leads to that, how this supports that, or does it at all. This is why we carefully look into the Word of God to find these things out, because we do want to see Jesus Christ where he can be known. The more we know about him, the more faithful that we'll be in our Christian lives. Help us, Lord, to search the Scriptures, as Jesus said, for in them ye think ye have eternal life. In his name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Ronan Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Ronan Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www dot bbaptist dot org